so that was a bunch of announcements, a bunch of stuff for you to remember. Here, Gary, you can keep that. Yep. Don't say I never gave you anything. Uh, but uh, one, more, one more thing just by way of announcement real quick. Uh, if you are available to stick around, what usually happens after the second service is you'll see people over here like moving chairs and putting up tables and all that because we have meetings in here during the week that need tables. This week, none of those meetings are happening and the carpets are getting cleaned. So I need some help. We got to get all of the chairs stacked up against the wall over there on that side. So um, some of you guys can stick around right after the service. We're just going to be starting to stack up chairs and don't feel pushed out, but uh, get out of the way so we can move your chair. Okay, that's the idea. Uh, I want to begin today just by reading the Word of God. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Um, we've been in the book of Ephesians now for the better part of this year, and uh, we're finishing it today. And um, we were right in the middle of this topic of the armor of God and what it means to be in spiritual battle. Uh, and we got through a couple pieces of the armor, and then uh, we had kind of a family emergency last week, and I had to call Pastor Dave and say, hey, can you fill in and preach? And he did an amazing job, right? And so, yeah, you can do that. He's not here. He's not here. Clap all you want. I'm not telling him. Um, but uh, he did a great job, and so um, we're going to pick it up today right where we left off there in Ephesians Six. So let me just give you the um, context. Beginning in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish, extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for, I, for which I am an ambassador in chains. That in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. In my house, uh, Christy and I have a master bedroom. And in that master bedroom, there's a closet. How many of you have a closet in your bedroom? Okay, so you get this? All right, so we have a closet. But I have to tell you that um, our closet is bigger than most people's bedrooms. Not really, but pretty close. It's one of those humongous walk-in closets, right? And I remember when we moved into this house, I looked at that closet and I thought, you know what, um, Garrett could live in here easily and nobody would have to see him. It would be perfect. We'll just stick him in this closet. Uh, it was that big, and I thought, what are we ever going to do to fill up this closet? Well, we've been there 10 years, and the closet is full. Every single inch of that closet has something in it. It is astonishing how many clothes we have, how many things we keep in our closet, all that kind of stuff. And I walked into the closet the other day, and if you walk into the closet on your right-hand side is sort of my wife's side, and then there's a little corner over here that's, no, then the left-hand side is my side, and... I was looking and just marveling at the sheer number of shoes that my wife owns. And, and, and I, how many of you husbands look at your wife's shoes and go, wow, why does she need so many shoes, right? <laughs> yes. And so I walked in and I went, look at all these shoes. And, and I thought, you know, um, 
she has, like, if she has a pair of sandals that she likes, she has them in black and in brown and in red and in blue and in green and purple and orange and lavender, whatever. She has them in every color, and, and if she has boots that she likes, she has them that are this tall and this tall and this tall and the ones that are this tall and all of that. And I look at these, and I was standing there, and I was just marveling at her shoes, and I was thinking, this is a perfect illustration for my sermon. I'm going to talk about my wife and how she has too many shoes. And then I turned to the other side, and I noticed my shoes. And I realized that I have a ton of shoes, too. And I would never would have guessed it. I never would have even realized it had I not thought about it, comparing it to my wife's side of the closet. And I went, wow, I can't pick on my wife because I have so many shoes. It's unbelievable how many shoes I have. And just to kind of share this with you, oops, there goes a tumbler. That's why they call it a tumbler, by the way. Um, I have brought with me several shoes. Now, in my closet, there are many shoes. Like um, today, these are like a sort of brown dressy shoes that I have. But if I want to wear brown casual shoes, you know, I need brown casual shoes. So I have some brown casual shoes. And I don't just have brown casual shoes, but I also have black casual shoes. And the reason that I have black casual shoes is because you never know. You might want to wear black shoes on a casual day and when you're wearing shorts or where you're wearing black jeans or something. So I saw these in the store and I said, you know what, I should get some of those. And none of you have ever seen them. And the reason you've never seen them is because I never wear them. And the reason I never wear them is because the first day I put them on with a pair of shorts, I realized that the contrast between the blackness of these shoes and the whiteness of my legs was overwhelming. And so... Those shoes are in my closet in case I should ever need them. I also have some other shoes in my closet, like, for instance, I have my UCLA flip-flops. And someone today suggested that maybe we should just call them UCLA flops, and I didn't appreciate that. But anyway, I have those. Um, I also have in my closet golf shoes. And I don't just have golf shoes in my closet. Actually, I have um, golf shoes in my closet. I have golf shoes in my garage, I have golf shoes in my golf bag, and I have at least at this moment two pairs of golf shoes in my trunk because there's always the chance that I'll be driving down the street one day and Chuck calls and says, hey, do you want to play golf? And I have to turn left and I have to have shoes with me so that I don't miss an opportunity to play golf. Golf shoes have these cool little spikes on the bottom so that when you uh, line up to hit a shot, you can grip the ground and you will hit good shots. I keep buying shoes, I'm not hitting good shots, but I have those. I also have these. These are baseball cleats. You, you got to have baseball cleats because, you know, when I was in high school, I played baseball. Um, and then, but, but after high school, I started coaching baseball. I became a high school baseball coach, and I've been coaching baseball off and on in high schools over the years. And so I have these coaches' shoes, and they look just like cleats, and they match the shoes that the team wears, but they don't have spikes on the bottom of them, right? So you have to have coaching shoes. So I have coaching shoes in multiple colors because it depends on the color of the team that you're coaching, and you've got to have those shoes. So I have those shoes. Um, I also have what looks to you like a regular tennis shoe, but aha, you are wrong. It is a bowling shoe. Because when you're bowling, you can't just wear tennis shoes, right? And so you have to have this little slippery thing so that when you slide up, you slide beautifully and gracefully up to the line and you bowl a 115 like I did on Monday. And then I have basketball shoes. And the reason that I have basketball shoes, of course, is that, I don't know, three years ago I played basketball once. And so you're going to have to have basketball shoes. So I have basketball shoes just in case I should ever need to play basketball again. And I also have... These, and, and the reason for these is just to look stupid. That's the only reason to have those. There's no other reason to have those. So the point is this. That's a few of my shoes. I could have brought more. I have countless shoes. I have shoes for every activity under the sun. If it's the thing I ever once did, I have a pair of shoes for it. That's why you don't notice any work boots here. But I have things for things I've done. And I thought I should pick on my wife and talk about her shoes until I found my shoes. And I realized, but it's different. All of my shoes have a purpose. <laughs> I'm just saying. So we've been talking about this whole armor of God thing. Let me just change the subject. We've been talking about this whole armor of God thing for a while now. And... And he's been giving us piece by piece, and the thing that has been so important to me, and the reason that you have sat carefully, quietly while I have read through large chunks of Ephesians 6 about four weeks in a row now, 
is that we have to get the entire picture because we're breaking it down and we're talking about one piece of armor at a time. And a huge mistake is that we would emphasize one piece of armor and neglect the other pieces when we're never told to pick up a piece of armor, but we're told to put on the whole armor of God. And it's so important that we understand that you may have strengths or weaknesses. You may have areas of interest. Maybe you really love the Bible, but you're not so big on prayer. Or, or you know, maybe you, you really love truth, but you don't like to act it out and actually live by it and live righteously. You don't get to pick your pieces of armor. If you're missing anything, you're going to get slaughtered in the battle. And I think we've established that there is a battle. It's a serious battle. And he begins talking to us about this battle when he tells us to put on the full armor of God that we might be able to stand firm. And he tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual entities. There's a spiritual war going on, and we are supposed to be taking, place, uh, taking part in it intentionally. Because you may or may not realize this, but you are taking part in the spiritual war. It's happening. It's happening to you, it's happening around you, and it involves you. And you can walk through this life with your eyes closed, pretending there are not minefields everywhere and bombs going off all around you, but you're making a huge mistake because we are all involved in the war. And so he tells us to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and to put on the full armor of God. And we talked in the last couple of weeks about having girded our loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14. So we're going to pick it up in verse 15 where he says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Hence, my shoes. He talks to us about shoes, that it's not enough to have great weaponry and great armor and great plans and great protection in this battle, but something as simple as which shoes you wear makes a huge difference. In fact, it's true in all of these activities that I like to participate in. If you happen to wear your baseball spikes while bowling, that's not going to go well, is it? And if you happen to wear your bowling shoes while swimming, that's not going to go well either. There are certain shoes that are fitted appropriately to certain activities. We've got this picture up here of our Roman soldier friend, and you see that he has on these sandals. But they're not just typical sandals like you would maybe wear today or even think of in that day. But you notice that they're high-top sandals. And, and, and all those straps on his ankle, they're not just for looks and fashion like some of the shoes that we see today. But basically, those shoes are fastened to his feet and ankles. They provide support for his ankles. They provide protection for his feet. Often, those sandals would be interwoven with bits of bone and metal so that they would not only create protection, but also work as a weapon. And they had little spikes on the bottom of them so that they would grip, so that you could stand firm which is interesting because when we go back to Ephesians, we see this phrase repeated over and over again. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm therefore, and it goes on. You think he's trying to make a point? The enemy is trying to knock you down. And if you're in a battle, on a battlefield, and you go down, you're probably done. It's as simple as that. There are people who are trained in the midst of that crazy Roman-style battle to just go for people who are down and put them to death. It's as simple as that. Once you're down, you're in trouble. That's why he tells us again and again, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. The shoes are important. So what are these shoes that he's talking about? He says our feet are supposed to be shod or, or shooed with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So really it begins with preparation. We have to be prepared. We've been looking at these pieces of armor and we've seen so far that we have to have a belt of truth. We have to have a breastplate of righteousness. And now we have to have shoes of the gospel. And all of this is about preparation. This is not even battle time yet. This is just knowing there is a battle. If you're a soldier and you know there's a battle, you need to have your shoes on. You need to have your belt on. You need to have your breastplate on. You don't take those things off because there's a battle raging and you never know when the attack is coming. 
You need to be prepared, knowing there's an attack coming, even when it's quiet, there's an attack coming. Because our enemy is an adversary who's like a lion who is prowling in the weeds, seeking to devour whomever he may devour. So we have to always be prepared to stand firm. And how are we to be prepared? The preparation of the gospel. The gospel is just a religious word that means good news. It's just literal translation, good news. The good news. And what is the good news of? Peace. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Peace with who? Come on, you can do it. Peace with who? With God. Peace with God. Guys, we, we sometimes get so used to the idea that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ that we don't even get excited about it anymore, that we don't even think about it anymore. It's just normal. Well, of course I have peace with God. God is love. God loves me. He's going to take me to heaven, all that kind of stuff. We need to understand who we are before we understand how what an incredible blessing it is to have peace with God. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. It's just a few books back to your left from Ephesians. It's after Acts. It'll be your fifth book of your New Testament. Go to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 1. We could read all of Romans 5. It's on this subject, but we're just going to look at verse 1. It gives us what we need to at least start the conversation. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He spent the first four chapters, excuse me, of Romans discussing man's problem with God. We have the opportunity to worship God, but we choose to worship ourselves. We have the opportunity to live pleasing to God, but we choose instead to please our flesh. We set ourselves up as enemies of God. And as enemies of God, we are in spiritual warfare. And the one that we're at war with is God. We have set ourselves up as God's enemies. And it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that we now have peace with God. As you continue reading Romans 5, it says, we who were formerly enemies of God now have peace with God. Peace with God. Go to Colossians chapter 1. If you go back to Ephesians and then go to the right a couple of books, you'll come to Colossians. I want you to see this a different way. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You were formerly alienated from God. You were formerly hostile toward God. You were formerly an enemy with God. And yet through the death of Jesus Christ, he has reconciled you to God. And we are no longer enemies with God. And we are no longer, we are not even in a truce with God. But as we saw in Ephesians, we become children of God. That he has given to every one of us the right to be called sons and daughters of God. That we are joint heirs with Jesus. That we are not only on good terms with God, but that he loves us with an everlasting and undeniable and unbreakable love. And nothing you do and nowhere you go and nothing you say and nothing you think can ever stop that love. That's a long way to go from being an enemy with God. And what did we do to deserve it? Absolutely nothing. That's why we sang that song today, Grace on Top of Grace. When our feet are prepared with the gospel of peace, we are standing in the truth that God loves us and that we are at peace with God. And we are also prepared to share that truth with other people because it has been graciously given to us. As Christians, we don't have to fear the wrath of God. As Christians, we don't have to fear the wrath of God. When's the last time you thought about that? Oh, not much. Not much. Been a Christian a while. You know, I, I was for a while, man. When I came to Jesus for a while, I was like, wow, I can't believe he loves me. I can't believe he's transformed me. I can't believe that he's made me one with him. It's just so amazing that someone as unworthy as I could have the love of God. But then you walk with the Lord for a while. You hang out in church. 
you get some Christian friends and you learn to talk in Christianese and you read Christian books and you listen to Christian music and you get so used to the gospel of peace that you forget what an incredible thing it is that we don't have to fear the wrath of God. It's an incredible thing. Romans 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, I can live fearlessly. Since God is for me, who can stand against me? It's, it's that kind of preparation of the gospel of peace that David carried with him onto the battlefield against Goliath. He knew the odds. He understood what men could see. He knew that Goliath was a trained warrior that was twice his size that was prepared to wipe him out. He knew he had no chance, and he knew that he was prepared with the gospel of peace and that things were right between him and God. You guys, when David walks onto that field with just his sling and stones and he looks at that mighty warrior, what's the worst that could happen to him? There's only two things that could happen in this, in this battle. He's either going to live or die. Either Goliath dies and David lives or David dies and Goliath lives. That's the only two possible outcomes of this battle. Either one is great with David. Because if the worst thing that could happen to you is that you die today and go to heaven, that's a pretty good day. Feet prepared with the preparation of the gospel of peace, not fearing the wrath of God, at peace with God, not having to worry. Gideon and his army of 300 farmers go into war against the great Midianite army, and they walk in armed with only pitchers, and they're not afraid. Why? Because their feet was shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Peace with God. When God is for me, who can stand against me? One of the, oh, the, the most amazing pictures of this in our Bibles is in 2 Kings chapter 6. So turn to 2 Kings. It's in your Old Testament early on. It's right after 1 Kings, conveniently enough. And go to 2 Kings chapter 6. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you the story. There's this guy named Elisha. Don't get him mixed up with Elijah. Elijah with a J was the predecessor to Elisha with an S-H. And in fact, Elisha was the servant of Elijah. And when Elijah was taken to heaven, Elisha received a double portion of God's blessing from, compared to what Elijah had. And he just carried on the ministry of his mentor. And he had a mentee or a servant or a sort of junior prophet who traveled with him everywhere that he went, and that guy's name was Gehazi. And Gehazi struggled with his faith. And Elijah is this great man of faith, and Elisha is struggling because the king is chasing him down, trying to kill him. But every time the king is sending an army after him, the Lord tells him, and so Elisha runs away and goes to another place, and by the time the army gets there, he's not there. And the king's getting mad. And finally, they pin him down, and they figure out where he is, He's camped right outside this little town, and they send an entire army in the middle of the night before he can even wake up and get away, and they send an army, and they surround him, and then they wake up in the morning from their tent, and Gehazi, the servant, steps outside, and here's what happens. This is 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 16. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And it doesn't say this in your Bible, but let me just fill in the white spaces a little bit. This has to be the point in which the servant stopped, turned, looked at Elisha and said, One, two... Where, what are you talking about? There's two of us. There's 20,000 of them. What do you mean there are more with us than there are with them? Did you not get enough sleep last night? Are you not feeling well? Because I'm, I'm counting two of us, and I'm counting a whole army that's got us surrounded, not just on one side. On every side, there's nowhere for us to go. There's nothing for us to do. He's terrified. Verse 17 then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses 
and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God sent an army of angels. By faith, Elisha was able to see that he was protected by God. But here he had this servant who could only see what was happening on the physical realm. And what he saw was terrifying. Guys, we live in this physical realm. And we see what's happening all around us. And some of it is terrifying. Some of us see things that are happening with our families. And we're devastated by it. Some of us see things that are happening with our health. And we don't know what to do about it. Some of us are having financial struggles. And we see a bank account that has red ink in it. And a stack of bills piling up. And we don't know what to do about that. Some of us look at our national situation and we're upset about the election and we're wondering what's going to happen. And we're upset about that. And I just wonder what would happen if God would open our eyes. If we could just see what he sees. If we could just remember who he is. The one who is, a for, the one who is for us so no one can stand against us. And to think of what it is to be surrounded by God at all times. It's an amazing story. You should read the end of it. It's incredible what happens here. But the point is this. Elisha goes on to pray and to say, Lord, blind the army. And so the army is blinded. All of a sudden, in a moment, everyone in the army becomes blind. At that point, Elisha comes out of his tent and he goes, hey, everybody, I hear you're looking for Elisha. He's not here. He's in this other town. Come here, I'll take you. And he has them all join hands, and he leads them, a whole army of people, hand, hand by hand, blind, to the next town where the army of Israel is waiting for them. It's an amazing story. It's a story of some people who thought their eyes were open, but they were actually blind, and some who were blind until their eyes were open. Guys, we need to have our eyes open. We need to understand who it is that is for us so that we can stand firm. Think of this. God, who was once your enemy, is now your defender. Stand firm. And then we go back to Ephesians 6. And in verse 16, we have this interesting transition. He says, in addition to all, in the, in the Greek, um, it's just a transitional phrase uh, it, it, it draws a line, a separation between these first three pieces of armor and the next three pieces of armor that are about to be mentioned. And he's distinguishing between the two uh, groups of armor pieces. On the one hand, we have the first three that we've already looked at that we put on to be prepared. We are prepared. Our shoes are on. Our belt is on. Our breastplate is on. We are prepared because we understand that there's a battle. And now we're transitioning into these next pieces, which are for the battle itself. It's they're, they're only used when we're in the battle. And, and he's saying the battle is on. Get ready. So the first three pieces are for long-range preparation. The next three pieces are for when the battle actually begins. And it begins with the shield of faith. Now, to the Roman soldier, there were two types of shields with which they were very, very familiar. The first, you've probably seen this in movies or pictures, where he would have a, a shield that straps onto his left arm and it, it, it's kind of like Captain America's shield, right? It's round, and you use it in the fight. You've got a sword in your hand, and you're in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and the guy's swinging a sword at you, and you're blocking it with the shield. They had those shields. That's not the word that is used here. He's talking about a different shield. The shield he's talking about is like the one in the picture. It's a big shield. It's rectangular, and it's curved. And the idea of this shield is it is used by the infantrymen when they are advancing upon the enemy. So you're coming upon a fortified place, and it's being held by the enemy, and so you take these big shields. They're big enough to block an entire man. You'd squat down behind them, and you would move forward. Let me show you a picture of how it looks when a whole battalion does this. That's exactly how it looks, okay? The Roman army is famous for designing this, this uh, shield as a way to advance in warfare. Because in the fort, there are guys with arrows. And they, they make the arrows, they set the arrows aflame, and they fire them by the thousands at the oncoming army. You've seen this in movies, and the army is, everybody's getting hit, and they're just dropping, and it's just a numbers game, right? But for the Roman army, they had these shields, 
and they were surrounded on every side by their shields, and they just advanced as one. And every flaming arrow that hit the shield, they just bounced off and fell on the ground and made no difference. And by doing this, they were able to advance upon the enemy. We're changing um, our, our, our uh, approach here. We're not just waiting for an attack to come. We're actually advancing upon the enemy now. We're actually engaging in this battle. We're actually going into this fully aware, knowing we're the ones that are engaging in the battle. It's interesting to think that we're to stand firm against the devil who is attacking us, and yet we are important as part of God's army here on earth to, to promote the gospel, to move into enemy territory, to be light going into darkness. Whenever you have an entirely dark room and you turn on one light, which wins, darkness or light? Light. He says we're the light of the world. We've been sent into a dark world. We are to advance toward the darkness. We are to spread the light of Christ and bring light where there had only been darkness. This is the problem with the church having an attitude that says, listen, the, way, the reason that we're here is to just sort of put up walls and protect ourselves and protect our families and make sure we don't ever have to deal with people who use foul language and make sure we don't ever have to deal with people who have different political view and make sure that we never have to deal with people who aren't like us and we can avoid all of the bad things that the world has out there. And there are so many churches that are sort of taking that approach. We're going to be this little island unto ourselves. And it's the exact opposite of what God calls us to do. There is a battle. You will be attacked. And you're also supposed to be a part of the solution. You're supposed to be moving forward. And so these Roman soldiers move forward with their shield of faith. And it's interesting, you know, the shield is one thing, but it's called the shield of faith. He's talking about our faith. Now, you say, well, what does he mean by that exactly? What is faith? Well, last year, 2015, I preached uh, three months on faith, just on the subject of faith. And we talked about it. If you haven't heard it, go to the podcast, go to the website, listen to it. It's good stuff. But, but the definition that we created as a working definition of faith is this. Faith is simply believing that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. And then acting like it. It's one thing to say, yes, I believe that the Bible is true. Yes, I believe in the God of the Bible. Yes, I believe that he keeps his promises. There's a whole lot of people who say, yes, I believe. But there's a whole lot less people who actually walk as though they believe. Yes, I believe that God is my source of supply and that he's going to provide everything, but I'm anxious all the time. Yes, I believe that God is the one who takes care of me the way that God takes care of the sparrows and the flowers, and yet I'm afraid to give to others uh, generously because what if I have to go without? Yes, I believe that I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church, but you know what? This woman is driving me crazy, and I've just had it to hear with her. There's a whole lot of people who talk the talk and don't walk the walk. The shield of faith is believing that God is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do, and acting like it. The acting like it part is the part that we miss. It's hard to act in faith. But you know what? Faith that doesn't act is not biblical faith. You say, well, I don't know. I, that's hard for me. I'm, I'm afraid. You know what? Listen, let's take the mystery out of this. Faith is not so difficult. You act in faith all the time. You drove here with tons of people you don't know on the road, driving cars that weigh tons, and you trusted them to stay on their side, and you stayed on your side. And hopefully you didn't shake in your boots the whole way going, what if someone hits me? What if someone hits me? What if someone hits me? Even though you know the statistics, and there's accidents that happen every day, and every day we go by them on the freeway, and there's cars crashed in the side, and we think, wow, I'm glad that wasn't me. And over and over and over, we get in our cars and drive anyway. That's acting in faith. Every time you get in an elevator, you're acting in faith. Every time you sit in a chair, you're acting in faith. Or think of this. And I've used this illustration before, but I think it's profound. If, if you have to have surgery, here's what you're basically doing. You're going to a hospital in a room full of strangers. You will be naked and asleep. And you will be so asleep that no matter what they do to you, you will not wake up. 
and there's a room full of strangers, and you don't know these people, and they have sharp instruments, and you lay on the table, and you trust that they're going to take out what they were supposed to take out, that they're going to fix what they were supposed to fix, and they're going to sew you back up, and you're going to get better because of it. Guys, we act in faith all the time. The examples I just used, we're putting our faith in people. And yet, the God of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who has proven himself again and again and again and again, we say we believe him, but when the rubber meets the road and it comes time to act like we believe him in our business life, in our families, with our finances, et cetera, et cetera, we back up and shrink away and we say, I'm just going to sort of believe it intellectually, but I'm not going to go out there and walk across that bridge. We have to take up the shield of faith. You will get crushed in that battle if you don't. You got to start acting like God really is who he says he is. In James chapter 2, we see this. Just turn to James 2. It's the very back of your Bible, right after the book of Hebrews. If you get to 1 Peter, you went too far. Just find James real quick. James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, James writes about this. Verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may, may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, biblical faith is never separated from the works that go with it. Never. The shield of faith. It's not just saying yes to the theological principles that are put forth in Scripture. It's saying yes to a living, active, vibrant relationship with God who is going to guide you as you're in this battle. You better take up your shield of faith. We've already established that the enemy is going to regularly attack you. How do you survive these attacks? You simply, I know, I know this is not um, romantic, and I know it's not mystical, and I know it's not exciting. It just happens to be the truth. You want to understand how you act in faith? You simply take God at his word. You simply do what he calls you to do. You simply believe what he says is true. It's that simple. You say, my faith is weak. I'm not sure how strong my belief is. I don't know if I can believe. What should I do? How can I believe more? Here's the best advice I can give you. Step out on the bridge. Try him. Do what he says and see if he's faithful. And I've said this many times. I've said this in the pulpit. I've said this to individuals. I've said this a hundred times over the years. But I'm going to stand by it. If you take God at his word from the Bible, and he makes you a promise, and you act upon that belief that that promise is true, and he doesn't fulfill the promise, you just learn everything you need to know about God. He's a false God. And if you learn that, call me immediately. Let me know. Because if it turns out that God is not who he says he is, if it turns out that God's not going to do what he says he's going to do, I need to know, and here's the deal, I have put all of my eggs in the God basket. Everything for me is based on the fact that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. If you find out that's not true, please make me the first phone call because I want to know. I have issued that challenge to hundreds of people over the years and I never got that call because God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. So take him at his word and take a step of faith. The next piece of armor that we need during the battle is the helmet of salvation. Now, if you've been listening at all throughout the book of Ephesians, as we work our way through the beginning of the book, especially, you should be able to answer this question. Who, to whom was Paul writing the letter to the Ephesians? Was it to believers or unbelievers? Believers. He's writing to believers, which makes this piece of armor very confusing. If we're all believers that are reading this, then why do we need to take up the helmet of salvation? Aren't we already saved? Isn't that part of the definition of what it means to be a believer, a follower of Jesus? We're already saved. Why is he telling us to take up and put on the helmet of salvation? 
Well, I think we have a very narrow view of salvation, and we misunderstand it because of that. I want you to go to Romans chapter 8. I know we're jumping around today, but bear with me. Romans chapter 8. And I want you to join me in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Paul's making the argument I'm trying to make. We think of salvation oftentimes as the moment, whenever that was for you, the moment in which you actually accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you transitioned out of darkness into light and you became a child of God. And that may have happened for you when you prayed a certain prayer. It may have been a process that you can't really pinpoint the exact date or time or anything, but you know that there was a time when you transitioned out of living for yourself and now that you're a follower of Jesus. And we think of salvation as that moment when we stop being dead in our sins and we become alive to Christ, where if I was to get hit by a bus the next moment, I'd be in heaven. That's how we think of salvation. But the Bible describes it somewhat differently. Here in Romans, he's describing this process that unfolds over time. And and a lot of this unfolding is long before you were born. And he says that it begins with foreknowledge, those whom he foreknew. That is to have a relationship with someone before they exist. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Those two things happened a long time ago, foreknowledge and predestined. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. If you're a Christian, that also happened for you some time ago. When he gave you the faith to believe and presented the gospel to you, and he called you. And those whom he called, he also justified. That's that moment when you pass from darkness into light and you become a child of God. So you've got foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and justification. All of that stuff has happened for a Christian in his past. And it goes on. He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified is when you get to heaven. It's when you're no longer dealing with sin, and you're no longer dealing with death, and you're no longer dealing with temptation, you're no longer dealing with the flesh, and you are all that God created you to be without any of those stumbling blocks, and you live forever in heaven. That's glorification. Now, as I look around the room, I see us all here. We're not in heaven, and yet it says we've already been glorified. It's past tense. So how can you say we've already been glorified? Because God is sovereign, he cannot be thwarted. And back before you were ever dreamed of, when he foreknew you and predestined you, you were his. He made you his. And there was a time when you were called and a time when you were justified, and there will be a time when you are glorified. But that whole big thing is salvation. And we're in the middle of it now. And so if you are a Christian, you have been foreknown, predestined, Um, and called and justified. And now you're in what theologians call the sanctification process. That's the process of walking with God and becoming more like Him. You're actually living out your faith here on earth and struggling with the flesh. That's the sanctification process. That's what's going on. That too is part of your salvation. And the day is coming when either the Lord is going to come back and get you or you are going to be brought home through death. And when that happens, you will be glorified. All of that is done. So when we say, why do we have to put on the helmet of salvation? We're not talking about foreknowledge. We're not talking about predestination. We're not talking about calling. We're not talking about justification. What we're talking about is the present and the future. He's talking about walking in your salvation. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he calls it working out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that you're saved, work out your salvation. Live it out. That's what he's calling us to do when he says to put on the helmet of salvation. And he's talking about glorification, to live today with the absolute confidence, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. An absolute confidence that says eternity 
is mine. I already have everything in the heavenly places that God has set aside for me. No one can snatch me out of the hand of my loving Father. Salvation, it's not just a legal transaction that, that may, you know, frees us from our guilt and gives us our inheritance. Too many Christians are living their lives and missing out on that because the enemy is attacking you right now today in the here and now and causing you to question your salvation, to question whether or not God can be trusted, to question about whether or not his word is true, whether or not he's strong enough to hold you. Listen, the same God who is strong enough to save you from your sin is strong enough to hold you in his grace. Make no mistake about it. We have to put on the helmet of salvation. Remember when David sinned so terribly, he committed adultery, he committed murder, he broke the trust of the people, he broke the trust of God, he broke the trust of his family, and he was a complete mess. And he sits down and he writes Psalm 51, and in Psalm 51, he pens these words. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Not restore my salvation. He didn't lose his salvation because of his sin, but he lost something precious, the joy of his salvation, the intimacy with Jesus. Some of us are Christians, and yes, one day we're going to get to heaven, but he didn't just save you for heaven. He saved you for right now, for an intimate relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And some of us are missing that relationship because we're unwilling to wear the helmet of salvation. The sixth piece of armor is the sword of the Spirit. And he tells us what it is. It's the Word of God. And some of you are sitting there and saying, finally, an offensive weapon. You see the picture here? It's this small sword, a relatively small sword. They actually carried swords, some of them, uh, that were like the cavalrymen had these swords that were four feet long and, and double-edged, and you had to swing them with two hands, and you would actually fight from horseback with those swords. But every soldier had a smaller sword, everyone. There was no soldier who didn't have one, and it was in a sheath in your belt, and you could easily grab it and pull it out in a moment's notice. Maybe the best way to describe this for you is uh, you've seen Western movies, and in the Old West, the sheriff, he had, he had a badge. And what did he have on his hips? Guns, right? In holsters, right where he could get them easily. And when you watch those movies, those guys, you know, there's the bad guy. He goes, boom, just so fast. Got those guns out. They fit in his hand just perfect. He knows exactly how to aim it and when to pull the trigger. And, and then he spins it around and does these things and puts it back in. And you go, ooh, that guy's cool, right? The idea there is that these guys spent so much time practicing with their guns that they were like an extension of their hand. And, and they had to be because there was not a moment to waste in a gunfight. The same thing is true for us. There is not a moment to waste in the battle. We've got our shields up. We've got our helmets on. We're advancing on the enemy. Do you think there's going to be some conflict? There is. There's going to be hand-to-hand -hand combat. You better know where your sword is, you better know how to grab it, and you better know how to use it. Because if you don't, there's no second chances. The stakes are high, my friends. And probably everyone in this room has at least one copy of this book, the Bible. Probably every one of us does. But it's sitting on a shelf somewhere most of the time. We don't read it, we don't study it, we don't try to memorize it, we don't get it into our hearts so that at a moment's notice, we will have it when we need it. The enemy attacked Jesus when he was weak. And what did Jesus do? Responded with the sword of the Spirit. He knew the Word of God, and he was able to protect himself against the attacks of the enemy because of that. This is an offensive weapon. We get to take the Word of God and use it to tear down the strongholds of the enemy, to cast down imagination, speculation, and every lofty thing that is lifted up against the knowledge of God. We get to use the Word of God to do that, but not if we don't have expertise with it. And you know what too many of us have done? We've said, you know what? I don't need to use a gun because there's a sheriff. Sheriff's good with the gun. I'm going to let him use the gun. And if something happens, I'm going to scream. I'm sure he'll come and protect me. And we haven't learned to use our swords. Because there's pastors and teachers and parents and people who know it better than I do, and I'm going to let them study it, and they'll teach it to me. I'm sure I'll be fine. 
The enemy is not going to attack you through your parents and your pastors and your friends and your neighbors and your husbands. He's going to attack you directly. And if you don't know how to use a sword, you're going to be in big trouble. As he wraps up this whole section on the armor of God, and he goes to wrap up the whole book, we go back to Ephesians. It's very interesting. He has some verses about Tychius, and he's going to send them to check on them and all of that. But then I love that he emphasizes prayer. He doesn't just talk about these pieces of armor, but you know what he says? Pray. Guys, the battle is on. Pray. And in verses 18 to 22, he goes on and on about prayer. And he, and he tells us what to pray for, how to pray, who to pray for, when to pray. And he gives us this whole outline of prayer. But the bottom line is this. Pray. You're in a battle. Pray. If you were out on the field and you had, you had a, you know, a commander back at the home base and you had a radio, wouldn't you use your radio? Wouldn't you communicate with the one who has the power to help you and the, the wisdom to tell you what to do? But so many of us, we just, prayer is like, oh, before a meal, maybe when I go to bed, a little thank you, Lord, and off I go. Christianity is about a relationship with God. Relate to him. Talk to him. Listen to him. We have to be in that relationship. And I love what Paul says. He says, oh, and by the way, pray for me. Pray that when I go from place to place, I will speak the word with boldness as I ought to. And, and let me just speak for a second on behalf of every pastor, every preacher, every evangelist, every Sunday school teacher, every elder, every minister that I've ever met, and just ask you, pray for us. Because the enemy is strategic. And he's got his best snipers trained on the leaders of the church. And there's going to be attacks. And there are attacks. Pray for your leaders. Pray for those who have been called by God to preach the word and, and train the army and advance upon the enemy. Pray for us. We need your prayer. But then he ends the letter. After all of this amazing theology and this great discussion of grace and all of this practical application about how to live with people, how to be married, how to be employees, how to be, um, how to be parents, and all of that kind of stuff, he comes back down to the very place where he began. And if we just look at the last couple of verses, verse 23, peace be to the brethren in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Grace, peace, and love. If we get that part straight, I think we're good. The book of Ephesians, teaching us who we are in Christ and how to live because of that. God is a good God. Let's stand together.